This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, Thank you everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who at one point owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Dio Dubrowski. With me, as always, the fantasy hockey robot, the advanced stats expert, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. I gotta say hello before I tell you that I, I prefer to shy away from that exact title. I guess for the purpose of this show, I'll take it. But there are people much more expert than me. Also on the show, we're going to be talking advanced stats. Sorry to steal your thunder, Elon. But I want to point out, it's a keeping Carlson first tonight. In two ways, we have a live interview coming on. Stefan Wolesho is going to come on and talk about some of the things that we call intangibles that are actually quite tangible. And Elon, the other first happening is you and I interviewing someone at the same time, which is hopefully more delight than disaster <laughs> yeah okay yeah we'll, we'll see how this goes it's still the preseason, so i feel like we could experiment yeah we're gonna try to bring on an interview part way through it's gonna be a fun episode today every year we do this we want to talk about advanced stats just the types of things that all throughout the season brian's gonna be when evaluating players talking about some things beyond just the goals the assists the shots the things that obviously we care about for fantasy but you know throughout the season like last year brian talked a lot about how often the player was on the ice when his team scored a goal <laughs> what was that one Yeah, IPP, and it's the sort of thing that you've probably heard if you've tuned in over the summer and you're going to keep hearing over the course of the year. So if you ever forget what a stat means or you want to brush up on what I have deemed to be the most fantasy-relevant new stats, then this is the episode to turn to. We probably directed you here, actually. Future Us has probably directed you here if you've like joined us six months from now and, uh, and need to brush up. Okay, yeah, well, bookmark it. But okay, before we start, let's mention that we are presented by the best fantasy hockey website out there, which is amazing. Brian, how did we land this? But we are presented by DauberHockey.com. Yeah, I mean, what else do you have to say? You guys all know what DauberHockey.com is because you've probably been preparing for your fantasy drafts. You've probably bought the guide. If not, and you haven't had your draft, like, what are you waiting for? Because you can get all of his projections and all of the insights and articles and sleepers and guys to avoid. It's like the best guide. The site is amazing. You get to go every day and see new articles, analyzing every little piece of news. We're going to do a couple of headlines this week. It's already been covered at DauberHockey.com. Great site. Great guide. Yeah. And not only is the guide there, but also Fantasy Hockey Geek. Elon, I have my first draft tomorrow. It'll actually be over right about 24 hours from now. I'm super excited. Fantasy Hockey Geek 
is a lifesaver. You just put in all your scoring categories and settings and weights, and then it tells you who the most valuable players in your pool are and takes replacement value into effect. It does all that. In fact, Ilana, I'm going in so much detail about it right now because we're going to get to a new stat that sort of works the same way Fantasy Hockey Geek does, but for a more generalized player performance way. I think I think that'll be one of the last ones on the list we get to, though. All right, so we better get started because we got to talk about all this stuff and we have to do our interview. But before we do, Brian, we have a couple of corrections, right? We're going to start the show with a correction segment from last week. Yeah, I think this is going to become a regular thing. It's the pitfalls of our switch to a live show. We don't have time to fact check ourselves. There's no producer whispering in our ear, although we do have people correcting us in the chat, which we appreciate. So you should do that. And also, if you don't know how to join the chat and you want to be here with us, 8 o'clock Eastern time every Sunday night, keepingcarlson.com slash live is how you can hear this before anybody else. Okay, corrections. Yeah, stop stalling. Admit where you were wrong. (laughs) Mitch Marner, if he doesn't make the NHL, he is going back to the OHL. He cannot play in the AHL this year. Last episode, I suggested that if he didn't make the Leafs, he might spend some time in the AHL. That is wrong, at least if that's the scenario this year. So it's NHL or bust back to junior for Marner. And I guess my analysis changes a little bit because what does he have left to prove? In the OHL, I think that little catch might improve his chances of making the NHL team because unless, you know, Babcock is bringing his Detroit habits over with him to Toronto, I don't see the purpose in letting somebody just score another 120 points in the OHL to prove not so much. Okay, so that's correction number one. And actually from a few weeks ago, it seems as though I might have implied that Trevor Daly is not on Pittsburgh anymore. He is. Yeah, I think you were talking about Justin Schultz at the time and how he might get the second most power play time. But because you were like, oh, Daly's not there, but Daly is there. So they'll probably battle for this meaningless amount of power play time <laughs> because Crystal Tang gets all the power play time for defensemen on Pittsburgh. Okay, Brian, I have a correction for myself. Last week, I was talking about Jesse Pugliarvi <laughs> and I pronounced it no. Jarvi a whole week, bunch of times. Last week, you were talking about Jesse Jarvi. Okay, last week I was talking about Jesse Puljujarvi, but I should have been talking about Jesse Puljujarvi. We got a review on iTunes saying that someone stopped listening to the show because he couldn't handle all the mispronunciations. I'm sorry. Just correct us. We'll correct it. We'll learn. We're trying to give good advice here. Hopefully that could overshadow. Anyways, I don't want to go on a rant here. (laughs) Yeah, thank you to Ryan W. in the chat. Or no, in the Facebook group, the patron-only Facebook group for correcting me and for sticking with us. Puljujarvi. Okay, Brian, let's get to... You know, this, is a, this is a fun show for me because I kind of get to sit back. Why don't you tell me what's the first advanced stat that you want to teach us about? Okay, well, first off, you call them advanced stat, and I feel like that term needs to go. This might be a nitpicky thing for me, but I don't find any of these terribly advanced, and neither should you. They're quite approachable and understandable. They might be in weird places that don't present them in as digestible a format as you're used to seeing your goals and assists over at NHL.com or yahoo or wherever you normally track your stats frozen pool over at dauber so i'm gonna call them new stats instead of advanced stats and really they're just like new ish stats some of them have been around for like eight years now and counting or at least publicly available for that long and maybe privately available for longer than that these are all stats that are non-conventional non-traditional but that doesn't make them necessarily complicated or difficult to understand or you need a math degree to figure out. And hopefully that's what we're doing this episode is lifting the veil 
from some of these newish stats that you might not be terribly familiar with, but you still want to leverage to win your pool. Yeah, maybe can we call them unconventional stats then? Because maybe some are new and some are not as new. I don't know. Okay, well, we'll use different terms throughout the show. You guys will know what we mean. Yeah, like advanced stats, it would be simple. It would be simple if I didn't have this little bone to pick. I'll probably change what I call them every time I say the word. The thing is, it's not so advanced to understand the stat, but it's very advanced sometimes to like find it on the internet and get a <laughs> ranking of players for these stats. Like, there's some really good sites. You always mention them in the credits. And I guess all throughout this, as you're talking about each stat, you'll talk about where you can go get it. And hopefully it's easy for you. But I know it's always so easy if I could just go to Fantrax or ESPN or Yahoo and just sort by who has the most goals. You can't sort by who has the most points per 60 minutes, even strength as easily. But there are sites where you could do it. Okay, Brian, I want to say one thing about this too, before we get into it, actually. I want to say that just like, when should we use advanced stats or comprehensive stats or whatever we're calling them? I would say like, you have to be careful to use them at the times that it matters. So for example, if there's a player who sort of gets the same number of points every year and we could like sort of set our watch to it, like uh, Kopitar comes to mind as someone who every year he gets 70 points. I don't need to really go in and see the reason why he's getting his 70 points. Like if he's having more offensive zone starts, I know that's like an old stat or anything like that. Like I know he's going to get it. The, the reason why I'm really interested in stats like these are for when I'm trying to evaluate a player who's had a, a sudden change. So like Zetterberg last year went from being almost a point per game guy to like 50 points or Nick Felino the year before went from the opposite, being from like a 40 to 50 point guy to 70 points. We wanted to know is this sustainable or is this repeatable like do we think it's going to happen again so then we need to go back and see like how did they get those points so you know we had a debate on our facebook group yesterday someone was asking about shea weber and how good he's looking and then people were saying like oh well you know he's actually not that good it's underlying stats to be honest i don't really care about shea weber's underlying stats because he's going to get 50 points over 200 shots and over 150 blocks and i just like i know that's going to happen next year so i don't really care so much like if something changes i'll care then but for now i just want to know more for me at least, when it's worth it to look into them and when you could just sort of go along and trust the regular stats and not have to look into the more advanced ones. So I'm going to go ahead and say that that is akin to driving a car and happily driving your car, even if something is wrong with it. Like even if it's leaking oil or gas or whatever can go wrong with a car and you don't know that it's happening, but you're happy to just keep driving it anyway. (laughs) You know, you're ready to go embark on a long trip in that car without knowing what's actually happening with it, without having it checked up or whatever. So You're putting me on blast here. Yeah, I, I think well, okay. I disagree a little bit. Like I, I agree that these stats can offer insight into what's going on with a player when something weird happens, but especially the first one I'm gonna get into can give you a clue about what's about to happen. Although at the same time, I do wanna put the big disclaimer at the start that these stats were built to be descriptive. They were built to describe a player's performance and describe a player's past performance, not predict or project a player's future performance. Obviously, we haven't perfected that. Dauber's been working on perfecting it for years, as have all the other fancy hockey projectors. We don't know exactly how to project yet. That's a piece of the puzzle that isn't there. So these help describe, but we can still look for weird patterns that are occurring that we can try and sink our teeth into and and draw meaning from. 
Yeah, I know for me, the first sort of advanced stat, which is really like not advanced at this point, but the first one that I really learned about and I found so interesting was just shooting percentage. Like, you know, it's not like the most standard thing people look at. And it's like so obvious when someone like last year, Oscar Lindbergh scored like 10 goals or whatever it was in the first 20 games. And it's like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Then you looked and it was on 20 shots and you had like a 50% shooting percentage. You knew that that wasn't gonna be sustainable. Anyway, okay. I think we've given enough of a preamble. Brian, let's get into these stats. We have an interview to get to. We do. Okay, we're gonna have to run through these. And that's probably good for the listener because it took us 14 minutes to get to the first stat, which is even strength points per 60 minutes. And right off the top, I can mention we are using even strength numbers. Why are we doing that? It's because they're more repeatable from year to year. They're less susceptible to variance. If I include a player's power play stats, those can really fluctuate from year to year. They can spike really high one year, go down really low another. And they're more likely to do that because it's a smaller sample size, you know, a a top three forward plays maybe 200 minutes on the power play per season. And that's just not enough time to have every weird quirk even out. I'd much rather look at a sample four times as big, say, you know, 800 minutes all the way up to 1200 minutes of ice time to really get a sense of what's going to happen with a player. If you're trying to figure out what sample size really means, it's like flipping a coin. If you flip a coin 10 times, odds are still decent. Like you could get nine heads and one tails, but if you flip it a hundred times, then you're likely to see those percentages even out to 50-50. So that's why we use even strength because we have a bigger sample size and even strength points per 60 is a stat that answers the question, which players are making the most of their ice time. So it takes all the points they've scored at even strength and puts it in a per 60 context, in a rate stat. So instead of just counting a player as 10 points, you're looking at what they're doing specifically with their ice time. And it helps highlight the guy who's scoring 50 points in a top six or even top nine role versus the guy scoring 55 points who's getting top line minutes. Yeah, I think this does two things, actually. So first of all, the more obvious thing that it does is it sort of controls for players who got injured for a while. So last year, Connor McDavid only, quote unquote, had 38 points, I believe, if these numbers, oh, that's on even strength. But okay, he only had 38 points at even strength. No, actually 28 points. But he was second in the league in even strength points for 60 minutes. So obviously we could see here, oh, yeah, when I'm ranking guys, I don't want to rank just the players by how they did in overall points because then I'm going to be ignoring guys who missed part of the year. Also, we see Mike Camilleri here is eighth in even strength points per 60 minutes. Also, Brian, I know, like you said, it's like a good trick. If you're trying to figure out who's someone who might break out next year, this is like one place I like to start looking because who's someone who made a lot of their ice time, but maybe didn't get as much as other players. And so if they had an increase in ice time, we might expect them to do a little more. I remember last year going into the season, we were projecting maybe Kucherov is a guy who's going to break out a bit more because he was getting a lot of points and only playing like 15 minutes a game. Yeah, so you have a choice between, say, a 31-year-old forward who's playing 18 minutes a night last year, put up 60 points, which is great, but then you have a 21-year-old forward who played three to four minutes less per game last year, so 14 or 15 minutes a night, and put up 50 points. How do you know who's the better guy? If you're expecting that 21-year-old forward to get more ice time or get a new role or get deployed more favorably in the current season... So you can look at their points per 60 minutes. In that scenario, the 31-year-old skater would have 2.43 points per 60 minutes, while the 21-year-old skater would have 2.52 points per 60 minutes, which is a decent advantage for the 21-year-old. So as long as you make sure that your 21-year-old guy is actually going to see an increase in minutes, if that opportunity is there, you can pretty much, you're not going to slam dunk it, but you can make an educated guess at that point that this 21-year-old 
could do better than the 31-year-old once the minutes are evened out between them. Yeah, and I think also this is like, like you said, it's not predictive. And maybe this is like a piece of the puzzle. So if you see a guy who's high in even strength points per 60 minutes, you can let me look more into this guy and see what else he was doing. So you see a guy like Joe Colborn is really high on the list, but I'm sure you'll have other reasons then you'll look into him and realize, oh, but there's other reasons why I don't think he'll be able to keep this up next year. But anyways, I'll just throw out some interesting names on the list. I'm looking at like the top 40 right now. Brian, going backwards, I guess, at 40, the guy who you really loved in our Yahoo projection or the Yahoo rankings judgments that we made, Carl Haglin is there, number 40. And I know you were really excited about Haglin. And yeah, he didn't play many minutes before he got to Pittsburgh and maybe even in Pittsburgh, not as much. So maybe he's someone that may get more minutes and then get more points. Look at the list. Alice Hemsky shows up at 35, which surprises me. Vincent Trocek is a guy that some people are excited about. He's 24th on the list. Like I said, Joe Colborn, and I'll throw out number one on the list, not Connor McDavid. He's number two. Number one, Yarmir Yager. <laughs> Can you believe it? But again, he's another guy who you have other reasons to think that he won't keep it up because you've talked about his high shooting percentage and things like that. Yeah, way to steal my thunder. I was actually going to segue straight into shooting percentage because yeah. that would have been convenient, but I'm not I'm not going to. It's not. That's not the order I'm going in. I'm gonna, <laughs> okay. Since you mentioned it, again, when you're looking up uh, this points per 60 minutes stuff, though, make sure... That you're look, you've set a minimum time on ice filter because players who've played like 23 minutes are really going to skew the data. Like at one point last year, Joseph Blend DC in New Jersey was like your points per 60 minute leader. So you need to make sure. Look at how many minutes, uh, how many games have gone by in the season so far. Give a leeway of about 14, 15 minutes per game figure out how many total minutes that is and set your filter there. All these stats, by the way, I should say right off the top, Korska.hockey and stats.hockeyanalysis.com are my two favorite places to get them unless I mention otherwise. Okay. Okay. Moving forward, we never have to explain again why we're discussing even strength points for 60 minutes. What's next? What else can we cross off our list of things we're going to have to explain every time? So this is another one. This is Corsi or shot attempts for per 60 minutes. So another per 60 minute rate stat to control for players who aren't seeing quite as much ice time who might be able to see more ice time way back on episode 28 when we did our how can advanced stats help me win my fantasy hockey pool for the first time. We looked at Corsi four percentage, which is not what we're looking at anymore. And just to explain why, let's say you have a guy who sees 55% of all Corsi or shot attempts. I'm not sure which word I'm going to use. They mean the same thing. A Corsi is a shot attempt. So 55% of all shot attempts while this player is on the ice go towards his opponent's net. But that doesn't mean that he actually is on the ice for more shot attempts than another guy who has a worse Corsi 4 percentage. So maybe I can break it down in a simpler way. Let's say a guy is on the ice for 20 total shot attempts. His team takes 11 of them. So he has a 55% Corsi 4 percentage. And then you compare him to a guy who's on the ice for 30 shot attempts, but his team only takes 15 of them for a Corsi 4 percentage of 50%, but he still has four more total shot attempts while he's on the ice than the guy who has the higher shot attempt 4 percentage or Corsi 4 percentage. So I hope that helps illustrate that being on top of the shot attempt ratios doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting more shot attempts. It just means that you're probably doing more to help your team win, but maybe doing less to help your fantasy team win. So I would actually prefer a player that is getting shelled by the other team, but is still getting 15 shot attempts for 60 minutes rather than a player playing well defensively and only putting up 
10 shot attempts per 60 minutes. Yeah, I guess a good example for this is like Phil Kessel on the Leafs a few years ago. You brought this up before. Like he was a guy who was great for fantasy, got lots of points. If you would have looked at his Corsi percentage, it was probably low because the Leafs were getting shelled all the time. But who cared? Because Kessel was getting you 40 goals and 80 points. Yeah, and I'm going to piggyback on this stat. So we already talked about even strength points per 60 minutes, the first stat we covered. That's actually been one of the better predictors from year to year for how a player is going to do. So it's fair to assume that somebody who had a good even strength points per 60 one year in a reasonable sample size is going to be able to do it again the next year. Travis Yost over at tsn.ca tried to find the next best thing to even strength points per 60 to figure out if a player is going to be a solid offensive producer in the following year. And he found that relative Corsi 4 per 60 minutes was the next best predictor after even strength points per 60 minutes. So relative Corsi 4 per 60 minutes means how many more shot attempts do you get than your teammates do while you're on the ice per 60 minutes? That might be a lot to think about, but just think about, you know, if a whole team averages 11 shot attempts per 60 minutes, just pick a total number out of the hat. It doesn't mean anything, but say a team averages 11 shot attempts per 60 minutes, but there's a player who averages 18 shot attempts per 60 minutes while they're on the ice, their relative Corsi 4 per 60 minutes would be 7. So you'd look at that player as maybe somebody who's going to be more offensively productive than the rest of his team. Okay, cool. So here, let me look at some players from last year that had a relative Corsi 4 that was high. And maybe, Brian, while I do that, someone's asking in the chat room for for a link to the site we're using. So maybe you could throw that in there. One of the benefits of joining us on the live show, we could throw some some links in the chat room, I think. But okay, Tyler Toffoli was at the top of the list, according to what I'm looking at now. Kopitar is up there, of course. Pavel Datsyuk, okay. Not not such surprising that I see Matthew Perot was actually very high. It looks like he was generating a lot of scoring chances. Of course, he wasn't really getting the minutes. So maybe he's the kind of guy that, and we loved him on the podcast a couple of years ago. Maybe he's the kind of guy that if he can somehow crack the top six on Winnipeg, you know, we see that he could generate offense and put shots towards the goal. That might be a, a tough task because there's this guy, Patrick Line, that's joined the team that I have a feeling is also going to challenge. But you never know. A rookie isn't guaranteed to be in the top six. Everyone's so excited about Patrick Line, including people we've interviewed on the show recently. But you got Matthew Perot there, a very capable guy. Maybe a reason to not be so excited about Patrick Line for the short term. Or maybe I'm just talking out of my bum right now. <laughs> the thing with this is it's not going to point out any surprise guys it's more going to illuminate somebody who's had a good number one year and then you can go off that and say well they did it they did it last year so that helps their likelihood of doing it the next year there are several stats that aren't repeatable that don't work that way and we're about to get to them before we do a quick word about primary assist which is another newish stat that i like to use so a primary assist is what the player who sets up the goal get. So the first assist on a goal is called a primary assist. They've been shown to be less due to luck or chance, like a lot of secondary assists. Who knows? You might even be off the ice by the time the goal is scored. A lot of time might pass from the time that you touch the puck, or it might have deflected off your skate to another teammate who then set up the other teammate. So primary assists, for me, they've actually been shown to be quite unrepeatable, So you can't always expect someone who's gotten a lot of them to do it again the next year. But it is just something I enjoy looking at. I don't know that it has a lot of fantasy utility aside from the fact that I'd love to see it tracked as a fantasy stat. 
One guy we've talked about a lot in the primary assist context is Taylor Hall, who is just racking them up in Edmonton on his line with Dreisaitl. And I already forget who the third guy was. Was it Purcell? So yeah. we gave him a lot of credit for being the one who's generating the offense. And it helps, it helps illustrate the guy who really can create a goal rather than the guy who just happens to get that secondary assist, which over time has been proven to be more or less noise which means there isn't a whole lot of skill involved in getting those secondary assists. I'm looking at the list now for last year. Taylor Hall was third on the list. First on the list, a guy who, oh, we've talked about so much, not Backstrom. I'm seeing a guest in the chat room, but someone on his team. So I guess that makes it pretty obvious. Evgeny Kuznetsov, 28 primary assists last year. What an amazing year Kuznetsov had. I'm still a bit skeptical that he can do it again. So we'll see if I get burned on this. But I guess here's a hint to my couple opponents. By the way, we're drafting for the Kim Carlson Ultimate Major Fantrax League next weekend. I'm probably not going to be bidding too high on Kuznetsov, so you guys could have him. There you go. That's a freebie for you. Number two on the list, by the way, Blake Wheeler. So he had a great year. I think that's going to be a more repeatable year than Kuznetsov's year. Yeah, fair enough. Actually, Blake Wheeler is smiled upon by several little stats here. And by the way, if you included all situations, so these are even strength stats. If you included power play, Elon, I don't know if you can change the filter on the fly, but Nick Backstrom would be way up there in primary assists, the way that Washington power play works. Oh yeah, you're right. I was looking at even strength primary assists. Okay, let's do this really quickly. And I'm seeing Evgeny Kuznetsov, still number one, <laughs> 43 primary. Wow, did he? I thought he didn't get that many power play points, but I guess when he did get them, they were primary assists. Good for him. Actually, Nicholas Backstrom all the way down at number six. Though, don't forget these are counting stats, and Backstrom missed a few games. He only played 75 games last year. Kuznetsov played 82, and this isn't a rate stat of primary assists per 60 or whatever. So right. injuries aren't being taken into account here. Right. If you go to all situations for the last three seasons, Nick Backstrom is right there in the top 10 with 86. He's a really underappreciated guy for what he does. We've talked about him earlier in this offseason. We tried to celebrate him appropriately. Okay, steamrolling on. The one that you alluded to, Elon, with Yager and having a great points for 60 minutes, but he also had a huge shooting percentage. And that's really, that's like the first thing that I learned to easily look at. And a lot of poolies learn to look at quickly to figure out if a goal-scoring streak is sustainable. We talked about how Tyler Toffoli was on fire at the start of the year last season. He was shooting like 27% through two months, and that obviously wasn't going to stay that way. Bound to see some regression. And Elon, you mentioned Oscar Lindbergh. I remember Matthias Janmark last year also had a big boost. And my favorite guy to always talk about here is Alex Chieson, who showed up in Dallas and scored four goals in his first nine games. And then it feels like he didn't score that many in a Sens jersey in the last three years. But what you're looking at with personal and on-ice shooting percentages, I guess I'll break them up first. We'll do personal shooting percentage first. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. A weird shooting percentage is not repeatable from year to year. Like a player usually has their rate. After two or three seasons, you get a sense if they're an 8% shooter, a 10% shooter, a 14% shooter. And that's the rate that they're going to hover around for the rest of their career. Yeah, they might bump up 5% one year, drop down 5% one year, but that has no implication for the following year. It's just not going to happen two times in a row in all likelihood. It would be very unlikely for it to happen. I'm sure it has in the past. So if you see a weird shooting percentage, if it's too high for one year, if it's gone too far from a player's career mark, then you're probably going to want to avoid them if it's on the high end. If it's on the low end, they might be a sneaky guy that you can go after because everybody thinks they've lost their scoring touch. But really, 
That's not what a lowered shooting percentage means. There's variance there. And we're actually going to get more into that with Stefan in uh, hopefully 10 minutes. Okay, Brian, I guess it's it's a subtle point, but worth repeating. You can't just look at a player's shooting percentage and be like, oh, that's too high. Like, obviously, if you see like 20%, that's very high. But like you say, you kind of have to compare their shooting percentage in a given season to their career shooting percentage and then decide if it's too high or too low. So I know you've always brought up Tangay. That's it. I know you've always brought up Tangay as a guy who always has a high shooting percentage. So when you see him, you know, hovering around 12% or whatever, you might be like, oh man, that's too high, but he's done it his whole career. So you, it's not so surprising that he's doing it again, as opposed to last year, like Yarmir Yager, or another one that we've brought up recently is Anthony Duclair, even though he, he was only in his early in his career. So maybe we don't know his career number, but obviously it's less likely that someone is going to have a high number like Tangay for their career. Right. Tangay's all the way up there, 19% over the last oh, wow. few years. And that is very rare, very uncommon. Usually you are looking somewhere in the 10 to 12% range for a forward, for a defenseman, closer to like the 4% range. Uh, Guys like Hoodler, Stamkos, Perry, Malkin, Adam Henrique, over the last three years, they've all sustained high shooting percentages. That doesn't mean they're all coming crashing down to earth. That just means they're effective, efficient shooters. And then you've got guys on the other end, like Jeff Skinner, Evander Kane, Nathan Gerby, Those guys are not all of a sudden going to find a scoring touch. Well, you can't count on it happening anyway. So their shooting percentages are low and will remain that way. They're not going to get a free bump to the league average. They're going to stay around their own personal average. And the other percentage-based number that you're going to want to look at is on-ice shooting percentage, which means of all shots that are taken while a player's on the ice, how many of them go in? 10 out of 100 go in. Their on-ice shooting percentage is 10%. And just take everything we said about personal shooting percentage and apply it to on-ice shooting percentage, except there is more of a league average for on-ice shooting percentage since a player is not solely responsible for their on-ice shooting percentage. It belongs to them and everybody they're on the ice with. So the list of players who have consistently high personal shooting percentages, like Tongay, Hoodler, Stamkos, their on-ice shooting percentage will be a little higher than most of the league, but it won't be as huge a difference as it is in their personal shooting percentage. So usually you're looking for an on-ice shooting percentage somewhere in the neighborhood of 8% plus or minus a percentage point. If you see something around 10%, that's high. And that's what we saw with some of the Florida Panthers last year in Barkov and Huberto. One of the reasons I'm expecting those guys to regress. And if it's low, again, same thing. It's going to regress back to the mean. So you can expect somebody who had like a 5% on ice shooting percentage last year. I can tell you Getzlaff at the start of the year had a pretty low one. Voracek and Giroux were totally in the tank in terms of on ice shooting percentage, but it did bounce back. And that's something you can see happen over the course of a single season. Yeah, I think it's like really important to consider on ice shooting percentage because shooting percentage seems so obvious. And last year you could go Yarmir Yager had such a high shooting percentage. But if you don't look at on ice shooting percentage, then you're not paying attention to the fact that obviously that helped Barkov and Huberdeau get all of those extra assists. So on ice shooting percentage obviously accounts for both goals and assists and just let you know if they're having a bit more luck than you can expect to move forward. We got to keep pushing forward. What do you have next? Next up. I hope we're not going too fast. Of course, you can tweet us anytime if this is problematic for you in speed or... Okay, but I'm wasting time. All right. (laughs) What I do want to mention before we move on from on-ice shooting percentage is that this is not PDO. A lot of fantasy players really love the idea of PDO, which takes on-ice shooting percentage and on-ice save percentage, rolls them up into one number, and then tells you if a player is seeing better luck or fortune in their favor while they're on the ice. 
for fantasy purposes, we don't care about a player's on-ice save percentage. It's been well proven that players do not have much of an impact on their team's save percentage. So that number doesn't really matter and has nothing to do with their own scoring. We're just interested in the shooting percentage, half of that. So forget PDO, just look at PDO's fantasy-friendly part, which is on-ice shooting percentage. Okay. Okay. IPP, individual point percentage, is another stat that we reference, another percentage stat that we reference. And like shooting percentage, you can expect it to be relatively stable across a player's career with a fairly common average across the league. So if you're a forward, you're probably in the range of having a 60 to 75% IPP. 30 to 40% IPP is about normal for a defenseman. So you're watching for sudden spikes in those numbers. And all the while you're asking, what's IPP? If you want to know, I'm about to tell you. If you don't, you can just try and look for changes in that number. But if you want to understand the stat, I think, Elon, you talked about it at the top. Let you me describe it. I'll do it. If your team scores a goal while you're on the ice, what percentage of the time did you get a point on that goal? So if, let's say, 10 goals were scored by your team when you're on the ice and you got four goals and three assists out of those 10 goals that were scored while you were on the ice, that means you got seven points out of the 10, so you have a 70% IPP. So obviously, if you're getting a point on every single goal scored while you're on the ice, that'd be amazing. You'd have 100% IPP, but that's not likely to happen. That's probably you're getting a bit of luck. You just happen to touch the puck every single time a goal was scored. Like Brian said, 60 to 75% is the average for forward and 30 to 40% for defensemen. But again, also like Brian said, you got to look at the players because some certain players may have higher or lower and you want to just look for something abnormal. And then you go, oh, this guy's sudden drought. Don't worry about it because he's still been on the ice. He just has a low IPP and then vice versa. You know, all of a sudden this guy's getting so many points, but his IPP is so much higher than normal. Yeah, exactly. So we found that IPP is not something that's going to sustain from year to year. Yuri Hoodler was a great example in that huge 70-point season that he had alongside Monaghan and Goudreau. His IPB was too high, way higher than it had been throughout his career. He dropped back down to earth last year. Still had a decent season in Calgary, but not that huge, outlandishly huge season that he had the year before. And I think, Elon, you covered that pretty well. You're looking, you're looking for aberration. Same thing if a player's IPP looks lower than it has been their entire career then you could probably hope for some better fortune for them in the following year. One important thing to mention is that it's really hard to get these numbers for shooting percentage and for IPP, individual point percentage, for younger players. You need to wait two, three years to get a sense of where they're going to end up. There are some younger players who have high shooting percentages or low shooting percentages or high IPPs or low IPPs that you can't really bet on regressing one way or another until you get a more of a sample of them in the NHL. And usually I'm happy with about 200, 250 games is generally a good way to set, especially if that's in a role that they continue to have throughout the rest of their career. If they're suddenly changing roles from like a top six forward to a bottom six forward or vice versa, then you might see a little tweak in how their IPPs or shooting percentages work, depending on how they're being told to play. All right. I think we got IPP. What do you got next for us? Okay, so we try and spice it up from year to year. This is our third edition of this episode. So I brought two new things, brand new things, into this one. And first isn't so much a number. It's just an answer to a question. And the question we get often is, does a new coach have an effect on a player's offensive or fantasy output? Because at the end of the season, so many coaches are canned or hired or whatever, 
And everybody wants to know, what does this mean for my keeper player? What does this mean for my draft rankings for next year? The answer in long-ish is that there are just so many confounding factors, right? Like you can't just look at a new coach. Sometimes there's a new GM, uh, trades happen, player aging, and all this happens over the course of a coach's career. So it's hard to really get a handle on exactly the impact that an individual coach has with so many moving parts around that coach and so many decisions being made by people other than that coach that'll have a big impact on their success. The shorter answer is, You're likely to see a change one way or the other when a new coach steps behind the bench and you can make educated guesses about which way that change is going to go. I look at Bruce Boudreau in Minnesota. That should increase their scoring chances for this season. I see Randy Carlisle in Anaheim. That should decrease the scoring chances for for players in Anaheim this season. It sometimes takes two years to see an effect, especially if you want to look for an improvement. But if it hasn't happened by then, if you're like, I know this coach is going to change the way this player plays, and it hasn't happened after two years, you can probably give up on it happening. Don't hold your breath. Generally, diminishing returns take place year over year from a coach. So you shouldn't expect big increases or decreases to happen after those first couple years behind the bench. They'll probably take the team somewhere in the first couple of seasons, somewhere positive or negative, and then the team will likely stay right around there for the duration of the coach's tenure. And I want to reiterate that the GM's role here is really important as well. Caroline Wilkie over at Hockey Graphs Uh, had a very detailed article exploring the impact of hiring a new coach or GM that tried to control for what happened when a new coach was brought in or a new GM or a new coach and a new GM. And I encourage you to go there. You just got the Cliff's notes of that article, but I encourage you to go over and check it out for yourself if you still have questions. So to round that up, a new coach, yes, they have an effect on their team, probably in the first year, maybe in the second year. And after that, you can expect whatever happened in the first two years to sort of hold steady throughout. Okay, cool. And I think there's some obvious cases, right? Like you have a guy like Mike Hoffman in Ottawa. He was clearly not being given the opportunities he should have for a guy who could potentially score 30 plus goals. We assume can't get any worse, right? So Guy Boucher is now the coach in Ottawa. I expect Mike Hoffman to get more opportunities. So I think that's kind of one of those obvious cases when a player is in the doghouse and then a new coach comes in, it can't get any worse. It'll hopefully get better. And then the same, maybe the other way around when you think a coach is relying too much on a player, who's a good example. I don't know. I've brought up Varlamov in Colorado, but maybe I'm just like scaring people away from him too much because I don't know, but it seemed like Patrick Waugh really stuck with Varlamov, even though I think Calvin Pickard has shown himself to at least be worthy of a chance. Maybe a new coach in Colorado might affect Pickard positively and Varlamov negatively. So yeah, you have to kind of think in a case by case basis but it's interesting brian to finally know that yes most often a new coach does have an effect yes next good last one this is the other new one that i'm bringing to the table and the one that i teased at the start of the show that kind of does what fantasy hockey geek aims to do except there's no like relative value to help you draft the guy in the right place it's called game score and it was made by a hockey graphs contributor whose last name I know I'm not going to pronounce properly. So I'm just going to call him Dom. And uh, you can find him on Twitter at O-M-G-I-T-S-D-O-M-I. He came up with this number called Game Score, and it's going to resonate with Pooley's as a results-oriented number. We've talked about a lot of process-oriented stats that don't always show up in the score sheet. They don't get rewarded in your fantasy league categories. But Game Score answers the question straight up, Who had the best game last night in a way that your eyes can probably see very clearly? And the way we've been taught to evaluate 
hockey by making positive contributions to your team with heavier weights to goals and assists and some weight to penalties drawn and some weight to penalties taken. Anyway, it takes all the contributions a player can make to their team, gives them individual weights and adds it up to make a number. So it takes goals, assists, which are broken up into primary and secondary, shots on goal, blocks, penalties drawn, negative for penalties taken, positive for face-offs won, negative for face-offs lost, positive for a shot attempt for, negative for a shot attempt against, positive for a goal for while you're on the ice, negative for a goal against while you're on the ice, which is essentially plus minus. And you put that all together and you have this magical number that is actually repeatable year after year. So players with good game scores one year are likely to have a good game score the next year. The blind spot of game score is that it doesn't really know how to account for solid defensive play, nor does it control for deployment. So if a player is not deployed in a way that they can get a lot of goals or they're starting in their defensive zone a lot of the time they're going to see much more shot attempts against than they will another player who's starting the offensive zone more often. It's also somewhat unfair to D-men because it doesn't value exactly what they offer in their game, and they have fewer opportunities to contribute to a lot of these categories. A lot of the times they're the ones taking penalties as well if they're chasing, if they're the last defenseman back chasing a guy about to go on a breakaway. All in all, it's a good stat. For fantasy poolies, we could essentially summarizes how many great contributions did a player make without taking any of the context into account that we look for for clues about fantasy production, but never shows up in your categories. So maybe you can use it as inspiration, like tweak the formula to fit your categories, run some numbers, see if it'll work accurately for your purposes. It is a single way to summarize in a very understandable way how the word I chose to use was delicious a player's performance was. And you can actually read the number kind of like points per game. Above one is very good. A game score of higher than one is very good. Uh, about 0.46 is league average. And you can go and have a look over at hockey.graphs.com or you Google the article titled Measuring Single Game Productivity, an Introduction to Game Score to see who Dom has ranked as some of the best games ever since 2006, 2007 and some of the best game scores of the last couple years. Yeah, so you're probably not going to remember all of these links, but we're going to include all of these links in our show notes for the episodes. You go to keepingcarlson.com once we post this episode, and you'll find all of these links. Okay, question in the chat from John. Who are the most delicious players? So I'm looking at this list now. You said over one is good, and there's a list here right in the article of the best forwards between 2011 and 2016. I'll just read all of them that were above one. They're such obvious names, so here they are in order. Crosby, Malkin, Sagan, Patrick Kane, Andre Kopitar, Pavel Datsyuk, Farewell, Pavel Datsyuk. That's too bad. Look how good he is. Alex Ovechkin, Joe Pavelski, Patrice Bergeron, John Tavares, Jonathan Taves, Claude Giroux, Steven Stamkos, James Neal, Jamie Benn, Ilya Kovalchuk, another guy who's left for the KHL, and Patrick Sharp, believe it or not, on the list, higher than some guys that maybe you would expect. Yeah, and on defense, the best players of the last five years, Eric Carlson, Chris Tang, Brent Burns, John Ooh. Klingberg. So these are really... <laughs> Yummy guys, like they're not the guys who you're going to go on Twitter and say, oh yeah, this guy plays a really sound defensive game, totally underrated, really great two-way players. No, these are the guys who are going to get you points in your fantasy categories. Game score is a great way to summarize that idea. Brian, uh, Eric Carlson, 1.07 and Drew Doughty, 0.83. Well, the thing is that it doesn't measure defensive contributions. So I didn't know that game score should be used (laughs) as a Norris quality, although... If you are doing such a great job at producing offensively, you are 
just by default, taking away opportunities for your opponents to produce offensively. So maybe Sidney Crosby should win the Norris Trophy one year. Uh, if it was... <laughs> I'm being Maybe silly. the sulky is what you're going for. Yes, silliness. <laughs> but enough silliness. So we've gone through all these stats that our numbers based are based on events that we can track. I can watch a hockey game and take note of all these things that happens and come up with these numbers. But then you've got all these intangibles and those intangibles are actually, well, they can be tangible just because we don't know how to measure them by watching a hockey game does not mean that they don't exist. And that is where today's guest, our first ever live guest on the show, making history is really strong in explaining how, while we might be not be able to see these things happen as a fan from the stands or on TV, they're still important. His name is Stefan Volesho. You might know him on Twitter. He's a social scientist with the government of Canada. And you know they pay a lot of attention to hockey in the government of Canada. <laughs> he's also an expert gardener. And he's here to talk to us about how we can learn more about how a hockey team works by paying attention to some of these things that have been ridiculed by a lot of people in the very numbers-ish analytics community. I shouldn't say everybody, though. I, I feel like that's an unfair edit for the analytics community. I think there's a lot more people who are accepting of these concepts than we'd probably assume. But I'm going to be done talking for now. Stefan, say hi so everybody knows you're here. Hello. Hello, everyone. Brian, that was the longest intro I've ever heard. Oh, Thank man. you for joining us, Stefan. I was just, you know, I was trying to segue live into this first question, but I couldn't figure out exactly how to do it. So I'm going to do it now. Okay. Stefan, the first thing, you ha- you've had a gripe. Like we've met in person a bunch of times and you have this gripe that if something can't be explained by the numbers that we know, by these stats that we've been talking about this episode or, you know, the ones beyond it, it's chopped up to luck and random variants and hockey is a game of bounces and slim margins. Is that really true? Are the consequences that we can't measure with our eyes, that we can't measure by tracking hockey games, is the rest really random that can't be accounted for by by what we can track? I think, well, there's partial truth to that. Um, there are bounces that happen in a hockey game that don't repeat. Uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs a few years ago, there's an incident with the New York Rangers where the puck stopped on the goal line because the ice chips were piled up, was near the end of the game, had a huge influence on the game. And it doesn't repeat like, you can't predict that ice chips are going to pile up and stop goals that determine hockey games and ultimately playoff series. So for sure, luck is going to be a part of it. But the way it's used is off to me. We have models that are common in hockey analytics. They're based on shot attempts. They're based on goalie making saves, things of that nature. And the models explain so much. And what is left over is luck in part, for sure. Like there, there are clearly bounces that are happening in hockey. The other possibility is that there's something else that we're not measuring that could be added into the model, but we, we have no way of doing it right now. And the, things like acceleration, we're going to have chip technology coming in. It may very well be found that accelerate player acceleration, getting to particular spots on the ice is a huge factor. But it makes sense. And I would argue that, well, there's other things that, that could also be added, uh, player determination, they, things of that nature, things that are 
cast off as as intangibles. And, and this really goes back, I think, to the start of hockey analytics, at least how it played out on Twitter, where people at first centralized around the Edmonton blogs, they were really trying to do a quantitative assessment of the game, which was great. And they didn't have access to those numbers. And they made fun of things like being good in the room that GMs or coaches would throw out that don't really have a lot of meaning. And so we have this history where hockey analytics has set itself apart from these tangibles. My argument is that a lot of these things that are called intangibles well we can really quantify them if we know how to do it and this is where you know there's a blind spot early in the analytics community there weren't really social scientists involved who knew how to do stuff like that there's a lot of math people people who are used to using numbers are extremely good at it but they didn't have a complete set of information for what could be measured so they just left it aside and said nope that's nothing it's a bunch of bs right so Initially, people were saying, look, this is what we found out. We can measure everything that happens outside the bounds of what we expect to happen based on what we can measure is just luck. And all the talk about somebody being good in the room or a really great team player or hard to play against, all those things were just sort of hockey blabber for people who wanted to pretend that they knew what they were talking about, whether it's a fan or somebody in the front office, but they were really, uh, people just thought that they were just bloviating, for lack of a better word, that they weren't really speaking knowledgeably about these things. And there are a few that you've pinpointed, a few of these latent variables, that, as you call them, that haven't been accounted for, and a lot of times are scoffed at, but they might have a real impact on how a player or a hockey team operates. I think that hockey analytics, the community, was right to scoff at how those terms were used just to to get that ball rolling. When GMs and coaches speak about a player, there's a lot of different reasons for saying things and honesty is down on the list a little bit. Like you're you're selling hope about a team. So you're not going to say, oh my God, this player sucks and we're saddled with a contract that's awful. Ah, GMs aren't going to do that. No GM in his right mind would take that type of approach. A coach Otherwise, isn't uh, Alex Semin would have heard it a lot, right? <laughs> well, and, and coaches aren't going to say, "Bad, I wish that I could just staple that guy to the bench, even though he's got a seven million dollar contract." Like, it's it's not going to happen. So, so the stuff that we get through the media, we always have to take it with the grain of salt. And so, I think a part of the confusion is that people were saying, well, these things that they're talking about, uh, determination, grit, leadership, th- that are used to, a lot of times those those tags were tacked on to poor hockey players. And they're saying, well, this is we have to get rid of the, this way of looking at the game entirely. Grit doesn't matter. Leadership doesn't exist. All it is is an excuse for bad hockey players to be on the team. Well, what was probably going on is that, you know, at least in part, is that there is some sort of justification for contracts you're saddled with, having limited options for who's going to be on your team. And maybe they knew that they that this wasn't the best player. Like I remember a couple of seasons ago with with Jared Cowan and the Ottawa Senators, and he was rumored online or sorry, in the media to be part of a trade for Jordan Eberly. Like I remember that was like a, a big deal in Ottawa media. 
media, at least for a little while, and, and Ottawa's position uh, that they were floating out to the media was, well, you know, Jared Cowan's a great hockey player. We don't really want to part. But, and it was clear that they were just sending out something to prop up his value because they were trying to get rid of him. So you know, I think you always have to take that stuff with a grain of salt, and it's a mistake to confuse statements made to the media as being fact. So when I'm talking about things like leadership or, or determination, cognitive fatigue, resilience, uh, things of that nature, those are things that we can measure if we get in on the ground, if we get embedded with hockey teams, and we start to really look at it and pull it apart and see how much of a difference it actually makes in the short term, like game to game or in the long term. You know, how good is this team going to be down the road, which is where leadership tends to be the most valuable. Okay, so let's let's pick a few of those apart. Maybe you can start with cognitive fatigue is, sure. is a phrase you mentioned. What what is that and what how can we see it maybe impacting a hockey team? Cognitive fatigue is, um, like I think it's a fascinating concept, but people, when they think of fatigue, it's physically tired. Hockey players will get physically tired. Cognitive fatigue is different from that. It's when you get drained. Um, it's mentally tired. I could be from being focused on something for too long a period of time. That'll sometimes happen. Uh, you play a lot of games. Maybe your attention is pulled in all sorts of different directions. So, it's long been known, at least in hockey circles, that when you have a long road trip, for example, and you come home, players kind of stink the first game back. And part of that, I think, is because, well, they're mentally tired, they're exhausted, they're on the road, they're practicing all the time, then they get back home and they have all the, the demands. Uh, their wives may say, okay, you take the kid for a while, I've, I've had it for, for two weeks straight and I need a break, or our friends are calling them up and saying, hey, let's get together. And, and, and their demands are being pulled in all sorts of different directions. And if they're not good at managing them, then they can get like really mentally tired for the first game back. And, the, and where it shows up is in errors, like little lapses during the game where the player just doesn't seem to be with it to make an uncharacteristic mistake. And you see, like I was watching for last season and, and you do see it, like I, at least I saw it with the, with the senators. Right. And that reminds me of a theory that we've heard bandied about that I think we've talked about on the show, or at least in, in our Facebook group about how players in the year that their child is born generally play worse than they do in the rest of their careers. Absolutely. They might see a bump, a, a bump down. I, I when um, when Robin Leonard in 2014, October 2014, he and his wife had their first child. I said he's going to suck this season <laughs> because he, he wasn't. He was kind of up and down in terms of. Um, he was a firebrand. <laughs> like there's, it's it's hard to to, to stay nice, but he, I, I'm sure he's, you know, he's a nice person. I don't want to slag him or anything like that. But uh, you know, sometimes I think his mental attitude harms him a little bit. And so when when they had the baby, I was thinking, well, we'll see in the first couple of games for sure. But I don't think that he's going to perform all that well this season. And he started off kind of stinking. He ended up with I think a nine oh five save percentage that year, which I'm sure he would have been fine if he was in bingo or something like that. But he, he really didn't perform well, and, and and I think that was totally predictable. I mean, players are. This is what. I think is important with intangibles is players are people and we have to understand that they go through a lot of the stuff that we do. They have 
children being born, parents passing away, they have friends and, and issues that are coming up all the time. And all of those can have an impact on performance. It has an impact on your performance at work. For me, it has an impact on my performance at work. And why should we expect it to be any different for, for hockey players? This like cracks me up so much, Stefan, because there's a patron, Patty, for of the podcast, and she would always talk about, oh, this player just had a baby. He's going to suck now. And I would like laugh, like, ha you're so funny, Patty. I was not expecting you to say that this could actually be a factor, but it makes sense. Like, you're oh, yeah. tired. It absolutely does. You know, a, a lot Go of ahead. the research for cognitive fatigue, it goes back a long time. Like, it goes over 100 years. So with, with that one, I'm pretty confident that this is going to, that this is a big factor in hockey. Yeah. So the main question now we have for you, Stefan, people are at, Ryan is asking here in the chat room, where okay. do we get this list of players having babies? We need to know this information for fantasy. <laughs> I have no idea. You know what? At, on top of the list of players having a baby, check media availability, check volunteer, oh. acti- check volunteer activities, check practice schedules when the coach is, is setting them up versus when they arrive. Uh, there's all of these things that are, that are a huge part of it. If you're embedded with the team, you have that information. If you watch from the outside, you may not. Okay, so Stefan, I have to ask you, what, there's one more theory that we've bandied about on the podcast <laughs> as a joke, but now I'm wondering if maybe this is actually real. If a player has like a friend that he like played with on another team and then that person comes to their team, does that help a player get better because now they're hanging out with their friend? For example, Elon, we had this summer, there was Jimmy Vesey and Jack Eichel in Buffalo. That was rumored to be enough to get Vesey to sign. And we had, uh, now that Taylor Hall's in New Jersey with Adam Henrique, there was also talk about how they're such good buddies. Yeah, so Stefan, is this real? You know... I'd be skeptical. <laughs> that one. I mean, I, I'm thinking about times that I've worked with my best friend and we didn't get anything done. Like, <laughs> so it, going by the, by the assumption that hockey players are people too, I mean, I, I'd be really skeptical about that one in particular. Um, that's where players scale. If, if your buddy is a really highly skilled hockey player and you get them on, then your team is going to be better. But beyond that, I'm not going to stretch it. I, mean, I think it'd be okay. too fun. Maybe maybe it can relieve cognitive fatigue to have a buddy on your team. (laughs) Or maybe it can just be a distraction in another direction. Okay, cognitive fatigue, something like the thing I love about this, Stefan, is that we can all relate to a concept like that. And I appreciate the way you're calmly explaining it. It's coming me down after I came in so, so, so strong (laughs) from your intro. Uh, So let's move on to resilience is another feature that you say we can measure that and it's going to have an impact on, on you and the people around you on top of whatever natural skill you might have at your profession, whether it be a social scientist or teacher or a hockey player, you have this quality called resilience and it affects the way you do things. Yeah. Um, with resilience, it's generally your ability to bounce back from bad things that happen. That's how it's understood. And so if you're on a hockey team, you could be in a big scoring slump. Like, let's say you just signed a $5 million contract. You've gone 20 games without a goal. Media's coming down on you. The coach is coming down on you. It sucks. Like, it, you know, it, it's a real struggle. Or you could have stuff happening at home that's challenging. Uh, a death in the family is is a big one for that. And so 
all players go through this. Like teams go through slumps, players go through slumps, bad things happen. So if all players go through it, well, some can some will bounce back better than others and manage it. So some players can go through that 20 goal or 20 game drought without a goal and then carry on normally. Other players, it gets into their head. And I think this is kind of what happened with Bobby Ryan a couple of years in, in Ottawa, where he started off on a slump and then he wasn't able to bust out of it very easily. It built up instead of coming down. And so resilience, I think, is, is really important to understand for hockey teams. There's some disagreement about resilience. Like some people see it as a trait that you're born with. Like some people are just better at overcoming things than others. I believe I've talked to hockey people after that article came out, like in private and stuff. And the idea that's been floated to me most often is that coaches in particular buy into resilience being something that's taught, that you can learn. And so you put players in tough spots and you kind of get them to work through it. And then they develop this resilience that they can carry on to other situations that it helps them every step on throughout their career. Yeah, and I'd imagine, Stefan, that it must be especially important for goalies, right? Because they're I, the ones yeah. in control. People are always wondering what's going to happen when a goalie has a bad game. Is he yeah. going to be able to bounce back and do better? Or give up a bad goal. Like yeah, it, even it, a bad it, goal. It, it yeah. can even happen within a game. Like if a goalie gives up a floater from like near center ice, you know, and, and it's halfway through the game, they're, they're in the net for another 30 minutes. They got to perform after that. And some goalies are really good at putting it behind them. Um, I remember articles and, you know, this is anecdotal, but when Eddie Belfour was first moved to, uh, this was, I'm showing my age here, but when, when he first went to, to Dallas and they're about to, to win a couple of cups there. The story about Eddie Belfour was that he didn't have that resilience. He'd give up a bad goal, it would get in his head, and then he'd be terrible for the rest of the game. And then the coaching staff really worked on resilience in particular with them. And they said, you know, no excuses. It's always the next puck. And he he became like they, they refer to him as a puck stopping machine after a while, where he just was so focused that you couldn't even talk to him before a game, but it worked for him. So resilience isn't a fixed trait. Like you can develop it. You might be predisposed it, to it, for, to a certain amount of it, but you can build, like a coach isn't wrong to throw a player in the fire or as a rule, I, can you not both. say that a coach should or shouldn't do that to a player? I, I think it's both. I think that some people are more predisposed to being resilient, but it's also something you can learn. So, Stefan, I think one interesting thing is some of these things you're bringing up, I feel like these kind of like could be measured once people were to accept that this is an important fact. Like, why couldn't we measure how goalies do after letting in a bad goal or having a bad game? We could find out which goalies are better at bouncing back after a bad game, say. Or like you look at last year, Jacob Voracek, I remember, had such a brutal start to the season. He had such a low shooting percentage, only had one goal in October and November, even though he took like over 60, 70 shots. And, you know, he was able to bounce back and still put together a great season. Maybe another player would have crumbled. I feel like these are things we could measure if we agreed that these were important things to measure. Yeah, that's and that's the challenge. Um, there are scales that we that, that are used in social sciences to measure things like resilience and, and, and leadership, for example. Like leadership is a good one because it's kind of easy. Like, let's say you want to know if your coach is a real authoritarian leader. 
well, you can't measure authoritarian leadership. Like it's, you know, there's nothing to go out. It's not, you know, five inches big or it's not five pounds heavy. Like you have to find some way of measuring it. So you say, okay, well, what is an authoritarian leader? Well, he's a leader who doesn't take input from people. He's a leader who kind of keeps to himself. It's my way or the highway. And you have all these things that reflect authoritarian leadership. And so you ask the people around him, well, is the coach my way or the highway, and he kind of rated on a scale. And so over time, we can have pretty good measures of, of these things. Like the leadership is something that's a little bit different because you measure it for other people more than yourself. But for resilience, uh, there are scales that are used where you ask people questions. You can get an idea of what type of resilience they have, how much of it. And I think it can be used to help improve players. I'm really big on player improvement models rather than selection models. I don't think we should be saying, you know, let's measure resilience and then ax everyone who has, you know, the score or lower and try to get them off the team. I think the goal is to try to raise everyone's uh, resilience so that they perform better, a little bit better. Because if you have 20 people performing slightly better, you're making way more difference than selecting one player and another who plays on the third or fourth line, which Twitter always gets upset with. Like, why did you put this person on the fourth line, you know, on game days? So for me, I think that um, that we can measure it. We, we can do this if there's a will to do it. But the trouble right now is um, there's a lot of teams believe that they already have a handle on this stuff. And so I don't know if there's a lot of um, a lot of teams that are kind of falling over themselves to, to say, we want this quantified, like they think they already know. Right. So when do you think we're going to get to that point that NHL teams are going to buy in in an empirical scientific way? Because, you know, I feel like anybody who had, who reaches some level of success in hockey attributes that to their ability to spot a leader, to spot someone who's resilient, to yeah. know how to coach the most of these quote-unquote intangible qualities out of a player. At what point do you think might they be ready to hand over the keys to a social scientist such as yourself or you know somebody else and let them come in follow the team, gather the data, make some assessments, and then make some advisories? You know, that's a very good question. I'm not sh- I'm not 100% sure because to go to my personal experience, when I've been doing this writing for a while and I offered up um, in my blog my services because I want to know what the numbers are. I was even willing to do it for free. And there were teams that were interested and I was in contact with different teams and there were three that were pretty heavy in the mix right to the end. But at, at the end of the day, they all passed. And, and that's fine. Like the, you know, they can decide what, how best to to use their resources and who to have on board. I'm sure there's hundreds of people wanting to like sending them proposals for different things. So, right. so, so there's, you know, no problem there, but it's really tough. I think that um, the one piece of advice that I got from someone at the NHL was to maybe try it out with a junior team or do it in Europe first in the professional leagues there, see how it works out. And then you have something, you know, this is what happened with this team. This is the, the tangible benefit because uh, teams actually are very interested in this. I, I've experienced that firsthand, but they're not they're not at the point where they're willing to say, yeah, come on board with our team. Let's do this. Uh, let's be dedicated to this process and see what happens like that. They're not there. And when you look at how long it took for teams to come around and just hiring an analyst and now the challenges to value the opinion of that analyst, which is now like a conventional scare quote analyst 
who can look at the newest stats and offer up opinions based on what the data says. You're coming from, it's not a newer school, but it's a more, I think it's a newer school to hockey. It's a different school. So they're just slowly adjusting to one. And then there's the social science side, which is, seems like it's another hill to climb. I have the same trouble in terms of numbers. Some teams are not really into, you know, quantitative analysis that much. But on top of that, like I said before, there's a belief, a pretty strong one among teams that that they have scouts and they have coaches and they have people who really know this stuff on the ground. So what am I adding? You know, what is this type of approach adding? Um, when I write, I try to speak to that. Like with with leadership, for example, how many teams are aware that there's different types of leaders and that what's one type of leader may be good for a team in a situation where they're rebuilding, but that leader is not good for a team that's ready to contend that season and a team in a small market who, who really needs ticket sales might need it totally differently. Like there, there's, there's different types of leadership and you really have to be aware of context and, and team culture and things like that. And not all of them work universally. So so management types may be very good at pinpointing, well, this player is a good leader, but is that the right leader for our team? It's kind of a little bit tougher. Right. And in your last article that you just posted within the last like 72 hours on leadership is available. If anybody wants to learn more about, and they should want to learn more, there's a whole lot about the dynamics of leadership, the different kinds of leaders, how it all works with Helpful charts as well. Uh, where where can they find that, Stefan? Uh, my blog is at Stories Numbers Tell, all is one word. And um, and in there, I, I write about these types of well, what's labeled as intangibles. And, and the, the blog is really about how we can measure them in, a, in practical terms, like why hockey teams should be interested in this, how we can measure them, and what types of things can we expect to get out of that type of analysis. So really, I've devoted the, the whole blog to talking about these types of issues and taking them on one at a time, like I wrote about resilience before that, cognitive fatigue before that, so determination, and, things like that. And pineapples before that. So if you want to read about everything all together, stories, numbers, tell. That was important. That was players are people. Players are people. And if you don't treat them like people, if you treat them like pineapples, it's not going to go well for you. Stories, numbers, tell.com. Again, Stefan Wallachio, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining us. Thank Uh, you for having me. People can find you on twitter.com slash S-T-E-F-A-N. W-O-L-E-J-S-Z-O, Stefan Wallachio, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you again soon. I'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. We'll definitely link to uh, your n- Twitter name in the show notes for people who didn't. It's very unimaginative. It's just my name. <laughs> yeah, for people who didn't follow all of those consonants in a row, maybe Brian will be able to <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. I, so I muted you, Stefan, but feel free to stick around with us. We're just going to do a few fantasy hockey headlines to finish off the show. Brian, I just wanted to get a few in. I know that we're running so late, but I just want to first mention Matt Murray. The big news came out. Number one fantasy hockey headline of the week. 
Matt Murray is now injured. We just spent Schwartz Goldingsborg talking about whether it's going to be Marc-Andre Fleury or Matt Murray, who's going to get the most starts for the Penguins. And you were saying, oh, don't discount Fleury just yet. He had a great season last year, even though Murray took over in the playoffs because of an injury. Now, all of a sudden, we find out Murray's going to be out three to six weeks. Three weeks would mean like right up to the start of the season. Six weeks could mean that he's going to miss up to 10 games. How does this change our assessment of the Pittsburgh goalie situation going into next year? Like, First of all, I just want to say, I've seen some people saying, oh, I was going to keep him in my league, and now I feel like I regret it, or I'm not going to. I feel like this shouldn't change your keeper decisions. But for a one-year league, does this change anything for you on Pittsburgh? Well, for me personally, no. As you know from our Smore Goalies Board episode... I'm into Flurry. I think he's good enough to win the job, and I think this gives him a really great leg up to do so. He's going to get, you know, Matt Murray might miss anywhere from no games to 10 games, so maybe it opens the door more for Flurry or not. But now, the thing is with Murray, I feel like there's less pressure on him to be awesome this year. It could be, oh, yeah, he he missed a lot of training camp in preseason, got injured in the World Cup, little rusty. Everybody else has already started their usual preseason routines, and he's not there yet. His hand is still recovering. He's got to adjust to the new role. Now, there's a lot of reasons why the Penguins can say, Matt Murray, you took us to Stanley Cup last year. We really appreciate it, but we're going to stick with Flurry, and we're going to explain it to everybody thusly, and maybe even you thusly. So that, that's my that's my Stefan Wallace Look at how they might be able to manage the situation, uh, although maybe that's a disservice to Stefan to say it that way. I'm still as into Flurry as I was on Smart Goldie's board. I still think Murray can get, you know, 30, 35 games in if the cards fall the right way for him. Not a good start, though. Wow. So it sounds to me like you say you stay the same, but maybe if you had some uncertainty, it sounds like now you have less uncertainty because now you're saying Penguins have more of an excuse to be able to play Flurry and not have to explain it away. Like, you know, all the fans, be, like Flurry has one bad game and the fans are like, what are you doing? Like, we have the Stanley Cup champion. How are you not playing him? Now they can be like, ah, he's injured and now Flurry's on a roll. So if Flurry can start the season and do well, they have a good excuse to keep playing him. Okay. Yeah, that's maybe good. Good maybe know. that's my own biases talking in terms of what I'm hoping is going to happen and just another road I can see in having Flurry end up being that number one guy in Pittsburgh this year. So it doesn't change a whole lot for me, except it probably changes a lot for pulleys who are drafting because Matt Murray is going to be injured during your pool. It might be a lot easier to pick up that Pittsburgh tandem now than it was before this injury. Yeah, if you want the tandem, that's great news. If you're in a keeper league and you were hoping to draft Murray this year and ride him forever... Like I said, don't let this dissuade you. Now's a good chance to maybe get him a little cheaper if people want to get goalies that are playing right away. So yeah, get him a little earlier. And we still think he's going to be, or at least he has the tools. He's had a great junior career and he did really well when he played last year. So we have no reason to not think he could be a great starting goalie for the Penguins moving forward. You know, maybe not next year, but the year after. Brian, let's go on to the next fantasy hockey headline of the week. I'm going to rush through them here because we've already had such a long show. Valerie Nichushkin. What? What was this? All of a sudden, we find out he's signed with the KHL. He is done. He's not going to be back on Dallas next year. So why am I talking about it? How is this fantasy relevant? Of course, whenever a player gets injured or leaves, that opens the door for someone else to take his spot. And obviously, Nishushkin is the kind of guy who's never really taken the spot we thought he would take in the top six in Dallas. But maybe some people would have thought this was the year where he would challenge for it. And that would have potentially pushed Yuri Hoodler or Patrick Sharp out of that top six, maybe more so Hoodler because they're both right wingers. Now it seems like if we were liking Hoodler before, now you just have more of a reason to like him because he has one less person to compete with to get in the top six to either play with Ben and Seglin or to get the consolation prize and play with Spezza and 
who else, whoever it'll be. Yeah, so great news for Hoodler. Less competition for him. And then you've got on the right side still Alish Hemsky, who, by the way, is already injured. Uh-huh. Fresh news, groin injury, not promising for someone his age at this point in his career. He's going to miss only seven to 10 days, but still uh, a bit of a warning, I think. And then you have Patrick Eves on the right side, who has been the guy to step up on that top line several times over the last few years, especially before uh, Patrick Sharp came along. And then you also have way down the depth chart, Brett Ritchie, who has had a couple positive reviews in the early days of training camp. He has played 39 games with the Dallas Stars over the last two seasons, 10 points in those games. He's been pretty all right as far as a prospect can look in limited ice time. So maybe there's some value if he can sneak his way into the top six. But right now, I think it seems to me it's clear that Yuri Hoodler's spot in the top six is much more assured with Nichushkin gone. And so is like the chance of any Pooley spontaneously balding or going gray with the problems of wanting to grab Nichushkin whenever he's in the top six and then dropping him when he inevitably leaves. He made it simple for us this year, and I appreciate that. Thank you, Valerie. I hope you hope you do well in the KHL. And, you know, it's for two years, by the way. If you're in one of these very deep dynasty leagues and you have Nichushkin, apparently he signed a two-year contract. Who knows? Maybe he'll come back. I mean, I wouldn't bank on it. John is asking in the chat about another fantasy hockey headline, so we might as well talk about that. Just today, I think I read Clark MacArthur has a concussion. He's not a guy who we've talked about in a while because he missed all of last season. But word was he was going to be back on the top six in Ottawa, potentially playing with really good line mates. Like he could have seen himself and maybe still can, depending on how serious his injury is. But, you know, he could have seen himself playing with the likes of either Brassard or Turris as the center and then either Bobby Ryan or Mark Stone as the right wing. So that could have been a good situation for Clark MacArthur. Unfortunately, he has a concussion. You never know how these things are going to go. So definitely some fantasy relevant news in that you should probably drop Clark MacArthur down your depth chart. You might have had him like as a sleeper, someone to take as your last pick. And that might have been a really good sneaky sleeper. Maybe it still will be. But obviously now I think you could just wait for him, you know, leave him in free agency and just like maybe put him on your watch list. And maybe you could grab him once you find out that he's going to be coming back from injury. Or I guess you could draft him, put him in your IR and then pick up someone else. Then you get the best of both worlds. You have Clark MacArthur on hold with your last pick and you get some whoever else you were going to pick anyways. Okay, you could do that. But at the same time, and, and this is the sad truth about Clark MacArthur, is that the line on him before today was he is one concussion away from his career being over. And I'm very concerned, very concerned that this is the one. There have been a lot of articles in Ottawa and around the NHL about you know this guy who's so well regarded around the league, a bit of a late bloomer, really came into his own in Toronto, who for whatever reason didn't want him back. Ottawa took him. He had an amazing year alongside Kyle Turris and Bobby Ryan when he came here. And then the concussion problems, well, they might not have started, but they definitely worsened significantly. Last year, there was a training camp issue in which he was injured. And then he only got four games in last season before having called a day. You can go read. If you type in Clark MacArthur concussion, you'll find these just awful, awful stories about how slow his recovery was and how he had to wear like sunglasses for a long time and couldn't have light and couldn't sleep and couldn't get up. It was just terrible. And then there was all this redemption story art going and everybody pulling for him because this is a guy I've been a fan of him since his Buffalo days. And sadly enough, just got blindsided in a training camp scrimmage, which is nonsense because this is the second day in a row where we have had an Ottawa Senators player concussed in training camp. And not just any player, 
Like these are stars. These are top six players. Clark MacArthur, Mark Stone the day before, injured by the guy who was the return in the Alex Chase on trade. Uh, his last name is Sealoff. I forget his first name at the time. And Mark Stone was hit by Buddy Robinson, who's like a bottom sixer in the AHL. So I don't know what his NHL potential is or what he's even doing there getting into situations where he can concuss Mark Stone. What bugs me is that Elon Smith. Well, you're smiling already. I mean, I was really angry this morning. I'm just upset because, you know, it, it was the fan fest in Ottawa today. So somebody asked the GM, when is Mark Stone coming back? And the GM said, oh, Pierre Dorian said, he's probably going to be back for the start of the season. Don't worry about it. Things are great. And of course, that's what fans want to hear. They want to hear that star players going to be back, that the team's chances at winning games and making the playoffs aren't hampered at all by this. But my question was, what is the organization doing to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen? Why is somebody concussing somebody else in a training camp scrimmage? And then two hours after I posed that question, Clark MacArthur's career might have just been ended for a similar event. Maybe there's a new coach. Everybody wants to prove themselves. A lot of people say training camp is the way to make your mark through toughness. I think that is bogus. I think it's nonsense. I think it's ridiculous. And I think it looks really bad on the Senators organization. It just frustrates me as a fan of that organization to see this sort of thing happen, especially if it doesn't happen anywhere else around the league. Right. Okay. That that's a bummer. Yeah. This is this is horrible. Like if this is like a long term bad thing for Clark MacArthur, then obviously this goes beyond fantasy. And like I really feel bad for him because it would have been so nice for him to come back and like end his career on his terms. And you know, he didn't even have to potentially end his career. He's not even that old. But this sucks. Fantasy wise, like I said, if you want to stash him, you can. But like Brian's saying, maybe we'll see, I guess, as as news comes out, what the diagnosis actually is. Hopefully Mark Stone as an even more like and actually was for sure going to be fantasy relevant this season. Hopefully he's OK. Hopefully they don't rush him as well. I wanted to not end the show on a downer, but I kind of have the last fantasy hockey headline of the week is kind of a downer, though. Obviously not as bad as an injury, but. Very interesting. Jacob Truba, news out of Winnipeg, is he is not going to be coming to training camp. He has requested a trade. I guess they can't come to a deal together. And we had some interesting questions on our patron-only Facebook group asking, like, could this potentially be good for Jacob Truba? Because this is a guy who's never put up too many points in the NHL. He's played three seasons now. His career high is 29 points in 65 games in his first season, which was pretty good. But then he followed it up with only 22 points and 21 points last year. Clearly, he's too low on the depth chart, mainly behind Dustin Bufflin. Also, they have Tyler Myers, Tobias Enstrom. So he hasn't been given... Uh, opportunity to get points you, you could say that or I guess you could explain to us how he's not an offensive defenseman and you should never expect points but some people were suggesting that maybe this is good for his fantasy value because if he gets traded to the right situation you might be able to grab a guy who's just about to break out if he gets that role that maybe he deserves so Brian why don't you just give us a quick rundown of the Jacob Truba situation and also your thoughts on him in general is he the kind of guy that can be fantasy relevant for offense if put in the right situation and do we think that could potentially happen I don't think he's a necessarily fantasy relevant guy. I think he's a potential top pairing guy, which means he might be playing with his team's top players, which means that maybe you can count on like 35 points from him just due to that. I don't see him necessarily as a power play quarterback type, but the Jets are already like we're getting tweets from Jets fans asking, where do you think they should send him? What kind of return should they be looking for? And my thought is they should be looking for Jacob Truba as their return. They should look to keep him. If you look at their depth chart, like first pairing potential guys do not grow on trees. He is 22 years old. He'll turn 23 this season. He's had really positive early results in the first three years of his career. Already has three years under his belt. 
I'm not looking for offense from Jacob Trouba in Winnipeg. 20, 25 points doesn't matter to me. I would like to see him just be a guy who takes heavy minutes, tough assignments, and is able to do a pretty good job of protecting his zone. If you look at the other options in Winnipeg for long-term D-men to hold down that right side, once they send Truba out, if they don't get another right-hand guy in, there's nobody coming up in the system who's anywhere near him. I mean, a lot of people might say Josh Morrissey is the guy who we hope blossoms into a top-pairing defenseman, but we hope he blossoms. Jacob Truba is a lot closer than hopefully blossoming. And you look around, and Tyler Myers is not the guy who should do it. Toby Enstrom is a little too old. Dustin Bufflin also getting up there. Jets fans should want to keep Jacob Truba. I am personally hoping that this is some kind of negotiation tactic on the part of the agent and that something can still work out. I remember Ryan Johansson, who has the same agent, had something similar go on between him and Columbus. Of course, this was before things went sideways with John Tortorella, but he ended up playing with Columbus that season, and I believe he may have stayed there if it wasn't for John Tortorella. So my preferred conclusion is that he stays in Winnipeg, and my super preferred conclusion is that he signs within like the next three days so I don't have to field a ton of thoughts about maybe he ends up in Toronto. Where's the best place for him to go? Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? And what if this player is sent to Winnipeg? How do you think he's going to do if he's part of the return? I hate dealing in that speculation. I just want to know where Jacob Trouba is going to be within the next 48 hours, please. Okay, well, you know, obviously we tend to not talk about rumors. Like we just wait to talk about things that are going to happen. But since you brought it up, and since you said we do have a 48-hour window, if he did go to Toronto, would that be better for his fantasy value? Just answer yes or no. You don't have to get into it. No. Okay. All right. Great show. This has been a long one, over an hour and a half recording. I guess after the edit, maybe we'll go down to an hour and 20 minutes. Still, thank you to everyone who joined us live that's still here. And even if you joined us live and left, thank you anyways. Thanks everyone who's <laughs> listened all the way to the end. And of course, thank you to our patrons, the people who put down some hard-earned money. They buy Brian and I each a beer once a month. Well, no, they buy one of us a beer once a month because the beers are on $5. And our patrons are giving us $5 a month to support the show. So thank you so much to those of you who are supporting the show. But of course, anyone can support the show without becoming a patron by you know following us on Twitter, giving us a five-star review on iTunes, not giving us a negative review on iTunes if we mispronounce <laughs> a player's name. We could use a few newer reviews to bump down the one about the name pronunciations. So Ugh. help us out. Help yeah. us out. <laughs> but I will say, if you were interested in becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson, this isn't just charity, right? We're giving you a free podcast, but and we'd like some support. But of course, we'll give you more if you become a patron because you can join our patron-only Facebook group, which is really buzzing. Like you ask a question, you have all the smartest minds, Brian and myself included, not to say that we're the smartest minds. We have a lot of smart people giving answers and opinions on, you know, any trade that you're considering or draft strategy or, you know, whatever you want to ask. Someone even asked a, a fantasy football question, but don't don't join and ask a bunch of fantasy football <laughs> questions because I'm just going to answer Doug Flutie to all of them. Also, you get access to our monthly patron casts, which are a lot of fun. Brian, you always get so annoyed at me when I'm trying to promote our patron program at the end of the show. Not annoyed. I'm loving it. I'm loving okay. it. All right. Well, with that, great Scott. Let's cue that outro music. And Brian, read us the credits. Oh man, there's probably a longest of credits. That was Michael Scott's production company, wasn't it? Great Scott. This episode of <laughs> This episode of the Keys and Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Corsica.hockey, Hockey Analysis, Hockey-Graphs, Travis Yost at TSN.ca, Hockey Reference, 
Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and Fantrax. Thank you to all of those resources. Like I said before, check out KeepingCarlson.com to get links to all the cool stats that Brian talked about. Great job, Brian. The season is almost upon us. And until then, you know, we'll talk to you next week with another episode. No, until then, keep on keeping Carlson. True.